fresh snow was on the ground and the sun is shining on your back warming you and you look around the sky is crystal clear blue and you look at the snow and it's reflecting back at you all the colors of the rainbow and there's often no wind in the morning so it's just it's just a very peaceful magical calm This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 20, Winter Mountaineering with Caleb Linville and Stephen Moldenhauer. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. I've got a great show today. We're going to break the standard format a little bit and do a trip report for a wonderful winter expedition that my son Caleb and my nephew Stephen just got back from about an hour and a half ago. These guys are exhausted. Stephen and Caleb, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. That was Caleb. Stephen? Thanks for having us. <laughs> so guys, we're going to be talking about your winter trip. You guys set out to climb a 13,000 foot peak and because of the limited access, you had a really long approach. How many miles would the full trip have been? The full trip would have been about 12 miles. About 12 miles. However, um, they had some adverse weather that moved in. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So maybe their distance would be a little off from 12 miles. But because of the distance, they were hiking in, setting up a snow cave, spending the night so they could begin their summit attempt at, what, 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that? Yep. And so it ended up being a two-day trip, and they had a snow cave and an amazing hike and climb, and so we're going to hear all about the trip. Stephen, will you take a couple of minutes to tell the listeners about yourself and about how you got started in um, outdoor sports and particularly in snow caving and winter sports? Yeah. Well, I'm 18, almost 19 years old. Uh, I'm going to school right now for a degree in a four-year degree in adventure education, and hopefully going to be working in the adventure education field when I graduate. Uh, I kind of got started into the outdoors. I don't know. I was pretty young. I had, I've always had a love for the outdoors, and you know, I remember going camping with my parents and with you guys. Um, you know, going to the Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado. And having a lot of fun there, and then I joined the Boy Scouts and kind of got into it a little bit more there. Got to go to Canada and for a canoe trip, and you know, got to have some fun adventures. But uh, really, I'd say that I started uh, really developing my outdoor skills when you, Uncle Curtis, would take me out, and you know, uh, that's when I first started doing my snow caving trips or winter backpacking trips. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Caleb, your turn. Tell us a little bit about how you got into your outdoor sports. I've always had a love for the outdoors and whenever my dad would go someplace I would either come along or dearly wish that I could come along and I had my first backpacking trip in the summertime when I was 13 and then my first winter backpacking trip was the following winter and I've just tried to do at least one winter backpacking trip every winter since then. So another thing about both of these young men 
Caleb is also 18 years old. Both these young men attended Warren Tech's Outdoor Leadership Program, and that program is a very intensive year-long program that trains students in outdoor leadership, so they learn all sorts of outdoor sports, but not only the sport, they also learn group dynamics and how to lead groups in difficult situations and how to make the tough decisions when you're on expeditions and things like that. And Stephen, take a couple of minutes to kind of talk about some of the things that you did with Outdoor Leadership. Yeah, with Outdoor Leadership, we had uh, several units, including uh, just off the top of my head, we had backpacking, challenge course facilitation, uh, backcountry cooking, rock climbing, orienteering, and then we also had wilderness survival and some uh, teaching or and environmental ethics units as well. Um, so throughout all of that, we would spend several days in the field, um, whether it was would be backpacking or going to a challenge course and operating a challenge course. Um, we learned a lot of great stuff, a lot about leadership and how to handle ourselves, but not only ourselves, and uh, but others as well uh, in the outdoors. I'm Uncle Curtis, and I'm Dad in this podcast. And these two young men, I'm very proud of them. We've been spending time in the woods for um, several years now, and they have become just outstanding outdoorsmen and it was exciting to know that they were trained well enough to do something as uh, advanced as this trip, and this was an advanced trip. So outdoor leadership helped them a lot with that, but when they decided that they wanted to do this trip, I, I encouraged them, and climbing a 13,000-foot peak in winter conditions and uh, snow caving and all that sort of stuff, that's no small feat. It, there are lots of opportunities for things to go wrong, frostbite, um, losing your direction in, in blizzard conditions, avalanche danger. It, it, there are many things that can go wrong. A misbuilt snow cave could mean that you uh, don't have shelter for the night. It could even mean a collapse that could be uh, very dangerous if, if you get stuck inside of a snow cave. But these guys, they have the experience, they have the practice, and, and they did it on their own, and I'm really proud of them, did a great job. So let's talk a minute about the trip. So Stephen, Caleb mentioned that it was going to be about a 12-mile trip. So outline the plan. What were you guys going to do? We uh, were going to get up uh, to the trailhead fairly early in the morning. We were going to shoot for 8, but I don't think we started hiking until 9 or 9.30. Um, and then we were going to hike right to Treeline, um, which we ended up doing. Uh, we hiked to, I don't know, there's just a handful of trees until there were no more trees. Uh, and then we built a snow cave and a small kitchen to cook our food. Uh, we spent the night, and then we were going to wake up about 3.15 in the morning and hopefully be ready to start our summit at 4 a.m. and then hike all the way back down to the car and come home today. Um, of course, that didn't quite go as expected, and Caleb probably has some stuff to share about that. So, Caleb, give us a quick summary, and then we'll get into more details, but what actually happened? Yeah, so we we got up, and we, we woke up at, at 3.15. Actually, the previous evening around dinner time it started snowing really hard and so we thought hopefully it'll pass over so we woke up at 3:15 and checked to see what the weather was doing and we actually had to dig out about a foot of snow from the entrance of the snow cave to even get out and then we looked around and it was wide out conditions we couldn't see 20 feet in front of us so we went back to bed 
and set the alarm for about five, hoping that the weather will clear out. And then again, we checked on the weather and it was still whiteout conditions. And by that point, we figured that we had lost too much time and the summit was out of our reach. So we gave up the summit and um, woke up around nine. And then again, we had to dig out our entrance to our snow cave to even get out because there's so much wind and snow so that's what happened and then we went for a nice hike up to a tall point to get a nice view it was it was a little annoying maybe because we were within a mile and a half of reaching the summit but we were out of time to reach it at that point so we went back down and broke camp and went back to the car (laughs) So disappointing, but there's a good lesson here. When they realized that the conditions weren't favorable for a summit attempt, um, they stuck to their plan to get back at the right time so that they wouldn't get stuck for a second night. And uh, that's that's wisdom right there. Sometimes on these winter trips, we, we reach our goals, and sometimes we just have a lot of fun. So this turned into a lot of fun trip, but let's give a few more details. So the hiking began probably between nine and 10,000 feet, and you hiked in about almost four miles before you built your snow cave? Yeah. Okay, so when we say hiked in, this is snowshoes, because there's a lot of snow in Colorado this time of the year. And um, how long did it take to build the snow cave, Stephen? Uh, this snow cave took a fair amount of time. Uh, what Caleb and I did is we just found probably a good 15-foot drift um, and then dug down and then dug in. And it was very consolidated, which was nice for just the structure and the safety of the snow cave. But because of that, the snow was really hard. Um, and so it took a lot more uh, work and a lot more time than I think Caleb and I were both planning on uh, spending for the snow cave. I don't know, Caleb. I think it probably took us about three hours, wouldn't you say so? Yeah, probably. And that's the surprising part. People often think that, hey, we'll throw together a snow cave, and everyone thinks, well, it might take 45 minutes or an hour or something, but they take longer. And uh, it's always been my experience that a snow cave takes a few hours to do right. And that's why I encourage everyone, if you are depending on that shelter for the night, you've got to start early. Because if you wait until it starts to get dark and cold to build that cave, it might be too late. So three hours to build the snow cave. Now, you built the snow cave right around Treeline. Well, Treeline in this area is between 12,000 and 12,500 feet generally. So we're going to say you were about 12,000 feet probably where the snow cave was. That's that's some high altitude camping for this time of the year. We'd love to call this a true winter trip. And it was because they had true winter conditions. But they missed winter by three days because <laughs> spring just started. Stephen, why would you encourage people to take up winter backpacking and snow caving? Well, there's two reasons that I can come up with off the top of my head, and one is just the physical challenge of it. Uh, snowshoeing is much more difficult than hiking, uh, much more exhausting, much more tedious. Um, it really uh, challenges you mentally as well as physically. Um, and then, you know, you finally get to your campsite and you start p- digging around in the snow. And that becomes pretty fun. You know, you get to get on your back and hollow out a snow cave and kind of make whatever furniture you want to make. You know, if you want to make a bed or a seat or whatever you want to do, you can do that in the snow. And so that becomes pretty fun. Uh, but then the problem is you also get very wet when you do that. And then it starts getting dark and windy and cold. And then it goes from a fun fest to a miserable fest at times. Um, you know, your socks are soaking wet, your boots are soaking wet, uh, you're stomping your feet, you're, you know, 
dancing around, kicking each other's shoes, trying to keep the blood flowing. Sometimes you can warm them up just enough to tell you that you're cold. I mean, they don't really get warm. Uh, <laughs> so for just the pure challenge of it, both physically and mentally, uh, I think it's a really good opportunity to really stretch yourself and to grow. But also there's something magical about the winter, um, especially when you can wake up like Caleb and I did uh, this morning and see fresh snow on the ground, uh, snow in the trees, snow on the high peaks. It's hard to explain other than it's just magical. It's kind of surreal. It's It puts you at peace. You know, you're freezing, but you're at peace in the heart. So those are two reasons why I would highly suggest for people to try it. So I'm hearing these stories for the first time as well, but Caleb did mention to me that he had to sleep with his knees bent all night. Caleb, what was that about? Well, as um, as we mentioned, the snow, the snow that the snow cave was made out of was very consolidated snow. At times, it was almost like digging through ice. And so we were exhausted. We had been digging for about three hours, and it was getting close to sunset. We wanted our dinner, and we both laid down in it. We thought the size of the snow cave was fine. But what we should have done is we should have made the snow cave just another six hours inches bigger and then we could have stretched out at night and been much more comfortable by the way these young men are very tall <laughs> so caleb is six foot three steven you're you're about six foot what uh, just about six foot six foot so anyway always give yourself a little extra room in a snow cave now was the floor nice and level and flat and smooth the place I started out was pretty flat and smooth, but Caleb and I switched places um, because when I went to go check out for the second time to see what the weather conditions were like, he rolled over into my spot, and so I took <laughs> his, and his spot was not very smooth at all. <laughs> <laughs> so another lesson is that with the snow, you can shape any any shape you want for your bed, and it's real easy to let it get kind of chunky when you're you just digging. You're not thinking about it, but it's important to try to make a nice smooth spot. Yeah, one thing about that, though, that most people don't think about, and I haven't thought about it until this trip, is that your body heat shapes the snow as you sleep. So that forms new bumps as you sleep. So in many ways, it gets more and more uncomfortable as the night goes on. Yeah, that can happen for sure. That illustrates the importance of a nice uh, insulating pad for winter camping. If your pad insulates enough, then the snow won't melt out so much. But if you transfer too much heat into that snow, then that's exactly what happens. Let's talk a minute about the gear you guys took along. I know that you guys went very well prepared, but what do people need for a trip like this? Steven, you start. First off, you need to have dry clothes and wet clothes, um, and that's very important. So your wet clothes are going to be the stuff that you're hiking in and the stuff that you're building your snow cave with. So for my wet clothes, I took a pair of wool uh, pants, and then I took um, a heavy coat, soft shell coat, uh, that was water resistant. And so those were kind of my outer wet clothes. And then that way I can get those wet. And then when I go to sleep, I also had a pair of long johns and some synthetic t-shirts and stuff like that um so that way when i would go to bed i'd be completely dry and wouldn't have to be uh trying to heat my body while it was wet um so that was very important i also had several mid layers i had a synthetic t-shirt as a base layer then i had a synthetic long shirt long sleeve shirt as kind of a mid layer then i had a fleece um as another mid layer then i even brought another in between kind of jacket uh, for another mid layer and then i had my 
heavy coat. Um, and I didn't, thankfully, I didn't have to have all of those on at once, but I had all of those in case I needed them. And I used them all throughout the trip at different times, you know, rotating some dry stuff on versus the wet stuff. Um, I also brought three pairs of socks. Um, it's very important that you keep dry socks for sleeping in. Um, and then some beanie, uh, beanie or a sleeping cap as well. What some people may not know is that in these sorts of conditions, if you get wet, it can kill you, literally. And so you will get wet when you're digging a snow cave and sweating and and working hard. And so you have to have dry clothes so that when you stop the exertion, you don't get hypothermic. And uh, Caleb, what kind of safety gear did you take? So we took two main items, and that was a shovel and a ice axe. Uh, The shovel is... I'm going to argue it's the the most important safety tool when you're going out in the winter time. Uh, you can make a snow cave with it. You can dig your partner out of an avalanche. A shovel is very important. And then also the ice axe, when you're climbing at high altitude, is very important. It stabilizes you as you hike up. And then what will often happen is if you fall, then you won't stop sliding until you hit the bottom of the map. So what the ice axe is for is if you do fall, you stick the ice axe in the ground with a method called a self-arrest. And then that stops you and it oftentimes saves your life. Okay, so you also add some other um, safety gear along like a tarp. It sounds like a simple thing to carry, but a lightweight tarp... Um, will literally save your life as well because you can use that for emergency shelter. You can do a lot of things with a tarp that in adverse conditions can really help block the wind, block the snow. If your snow cave had failed, you could have built a tarp shelter that that would have taken care of you as well. So we have several changes of clothes. Steven, you mentioned synthetics a couple of times. Uh, Why synthetics? Uh, You want synthetics because of two reasons. One, they dry a lot quicker. And two, they don't take the heat out of your body as drastically when they're wet as cotton does. Um, In the outdoor field, you'll often hear a couple sayings like cotton's rotten or cotton kills. Um, And the reason for that is because when cotton gets wet, not only is it going to stay wet for an extended period of time, but it's also uh, just absorbing all of your body heat. And so that's why it's very important to have synthetic stuff whenever you go into the backcountry. I bring synthetic stuff for both winter and summer uh, backpacking and camping and stuff like that. Uh, so that's very important. Um, one thing that we didn't mention was our sleeping system, and I think it would be a good thing to talk about that real quick. Um, so for our sleeping system, both Caleb and I had uh, foam pads, which honestly is probably the coldest that we could have done. If we would have brought some sort of an air blow-up uh, sleeping mattress, that probably would have helped insulate us from the snow a little bit better and would have kept us a little warmer. But the uh, foam pads we used worked just fine. And then we also both had uh, down sleeping bags that were rated to, or at least at one point, uh, close to zero degrees. Uh, So that helped keep us nice and warm. But on top of that, we also had a small fleece liner sleeping bag that we put inside of our sleeping bag uh, to help add a couple more degrees to our sleeping system so yeah it sounds like a good idea some people will take two foam pads on a winter trip so they can double up on the insulation that may have helped a little bit they're pretty light so they just kind of bulky a thermorest goes a long way (laughs) some sort of an, an inflatable pad really really helps so caleb will you tell us what it was like when you guys finally rolled out of bed for the last time this morning you had to shovel the snowdrift out of the door but describe for us the air, the views, the temperatures, 
the sky. What did you see this morning? Well, early in the morning when you first get out of the snow cave or whatever shelter you're using, that is the one of the most magical moments, but it's also one of the coldest moments because you have your most likely dehydrated and you have you haven't had breakfast yet and you haven't been active in quite a few hours so it's cold but then also you wake up and like it was this morning the fresh snow was on the ground and the sun is shining on your back warming you and you look around the sky is crystal clear blue and you look at the snow and it's reflecting back at you all the colors of the rainbow um and there's often no wind in in the morning so it's just it's just a very peaceful magical calm that sounds nice you know that deep blue sky at those elevations in the winter time you can dive into it you literally feel like you could just dive up into the sky and swim away it's a it's a beautiful beautiful thing so steven what do you think was one of your favorite moments of this trip uh, I really enjoyed when we were able to hike up to the ridge uh, today. Uh, even though we weren't able to summit the 13er, and it was kind of frustrating not being able to. You know, you're so close and you just you're not able to do it. So that was kind of disappointing. But it was really beautiful uh, getting up to the ridge. We were able to see uh, like four 14ers um, in the distance. All all of them snow capped. Uh, you look to the east and you see, you know, several miles of mountains and then it down into the plains of Denver. Uh, so that was a unique experience. I haven't really experienced being close enough to the Denver Front Range to be able to see the plains um, at that altitude. So that was cool. But, yeah, it was just I love seeing the high barren peaks filled with snow. And so that was probably my favorite part of the trip was just being able to see those magical views. So Caleb said that you guys summited a smaller mountain before um, it was kind of on the way to James Peak. If I understand correctly, that means you guys summited Kingston Peak, which is pretty cool. And so you got well over 12,000 feet, and you had the amazing views. So you said four 14ers. Let's see. You could see Evans, Grays, Tories, Longs, perhaps? No, we weren't able to see Longs, but we were able to see Pikes Peak and Colorado Springs. Pikes Peak. Okay, there's a fourth one. That's really cool. You know how far away that was? Pikes Peak is probably, just guessing here, 70 to 80 miles from where you guys were. (laughs) And that's how clear the air is. You're looking 80 miles through the atmosphere and seeing a peak. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it really was. All right, Caleb, tell us about something that didn't go quite right on this trip and that you would have done differently. Uh, Well... As I said, uh, expanding the snow cave a little bit would have helped a lot. Um, Honestly, though, this trip went pretty smoothly. Usually something goes wrong, like a equipment malfunction or something that you have to deal with. But this trip was very surprising because nothing really went wrong except for the minor uh, problem of the snow cave. And some adverse weather. (laughs) Yeah, and some adverse weather. (laughs) Yeah. But we did have a near miss. Um, Both Caleb and I did bring a headlamp. However, the one that Caleb brought uh, wasn't very effective, and then I didn't bring extra batteries. And so if we were to have been hiking in the morning in the dark, um, Caleb probably wouldn't have had a very good light, and then if my light would have went out, we didn't have extra batteries. So that's something to keep in mind to always remember to bring extra batteries. So we had a near miss on that one. 
Yeah, there was a crescent moon last night, too, so it would have set even by the time you guys got up, I think. Yeah. It would have been a very dark hike. What were the stars like last night? You know, it started snowing by the time it got dark, so I don't really remember seeing the stars. Do you, Caleb? No. Um, yeah, we didn't see any stars. However, when I got up at 3.15 to check out the weather, uh, for a split moment, I I looked up at the sky, and through all the snow and the wind, I did see the moon, and <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is neat. So it sounds like, you know, you guys got two to four inches or something, but it was a ground blizzard, and that's why you couldn't see. The visibility was so bad because of the wind blowing, and that's what caused all the drifts in, in your door, I guess. How cold do you think it was? It might have gotten down to mid-teens at the coldest point. Yeah, that was something very unique about this trip also, is that it got really cold at night, but then during the daytime, when the sun was out, it was 50 degrees, and, you know, it was warm enough to go around in a t-shirt and be perfectly, perfectly comfortable. Wow. So that's a big temperature spread you don't see a lot of the time. So from the teens at night to about 50 degrees during the day, so that's a that's a huge temperature spread, which again illustrates why you need so many different um, layers of clothing so that you can adjust for those big temperature changes. The Kindness Diaries, the new book by Leon Logothetis, the global adventurer, motivational speaker, and philanthropist, is now available. The Kindness Diaries chronicles Leon's travel around the globe fueled only on the kindness of others. Visit www.leonlogothetis.com to learn more about Leon's adventures and look for The Kindness Diaries anywhere books are sold. Hey all you mountain biking enthusiasts out there, come be a part of the 2015 CycleFest Colorado on May 16th. The CycleFest is a day of festivities supporting the Colorado High School Cycling League. All of the proceeds go to support cross-country mountain biking in Colorado and Wyoming. Special guest Sonia Looney will be there leading an afternoon ride for students and also speaking as a special guest at dinner that night. The dinner is at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, Colorado, once again, May 16th. You can buy tickets at www.coloradomtb.org. That is Colorado, M as in mountain, T as in trail, B as in bike.org. Come be a part of the fun. Um, one of the most important things when you're doing these winter adventures is to make sure that you have avalanche safety awareness, um, that you're not going to get yourself caught in a big slide. People die every year in Colorado in avalanches. It's uh, it's all too common. And you guys did not take avalanche beacons with you. So since you didn't have avalanche beacons, what measures did you take to avoid avalanche danger? Caleb, take this one. Yeah, so um, we really avoided any snow, any snow-packed areas. Uh, we did do a little bit of glissading on the way down from uh, Kings Peak, Kingston, Kingston Peak. And the reason we thought we could do it is because we tested the snow a little bit, and it was made up of the same hard-packed, firm, uh, wind-blown snow that our snow cave was 
made out of. So we figured that it wasn't going anywhere. And we only glissaded down small uh, patches of snow for, I don't know, a few hundred feet at max, so that if a slide did start, which was very unlikely, it would have been really small. Your main approach then to avoiding avalanche danger was to stay off of avalanche terrain. Mm -hmm. Yep. Avalanche um, awareness is really important, and it takes quite a bit of coursework to become an avalanche expert, and even the experts die sometimes. So it's a really risky thing, and uh, Stephen and Caleb both agreed before the trip that they just wouldn't get on avalanche terrain this time, and I was glad to hear that. One of the things this time of the year especially that can be very dangerous is you get layers of snow that have baked in the sun, and they harden and and polish a little bit, turn into ice, and then more snow falls on top, and that creates a slide layer, and it can make the snow very unstable. And then the top layers can consolidate because of the warmer temperatures during the day, and they can make slabs, very large slabs, that are still on a slide layer. So sometimes a slab will break free that's the size of a house. It takes off down a mountain, and you have, you know, hundreds of tons of snow, and there's just no way to survive that when it comes down on top of you. It's just, you know, it's like a house falling on you. So um, earlier in the season, avalanches are often lighter powder, and in those sorts of slides, if you're blessed and lucky, you can swim your way to the top as the slide goes down and uh, escape that way. But this time of the year, the big heavy slab slides can just be devastating. Another issue this time of the year is what they call sugar snow. Um, Sugar snow is when snow changes and metamorphizes, and instead of snow flakes, it makes tiny little snow crystals about the size of sugar, thus the sugar snow, but it's like miniature ball bearings. The stuff will not pack together. You can't make a snowball out of it, and again, ball bearings make a great slide layer. So You guys didn't have sugar snow this trip. You didn't have powder, and you didn't have slide layers. I saw where you dug down, and I could see the layers that were there, and you could see the different snowstorms that had come through all year, and the snow was just really consolidated and stable. Yeah. So, Stephen, what advice would you have for our listeners about avalanche danger? What did we not cover? Well, I think it's really important to take an avalanche uh, or an AVI-1 avalanche training course, which neither Caleb and I did have, Um, and I think that's something that we both regretted on this trip just because – as a result of our lack of knowledge, we decided to be extra conservative, which, you know, is always a good idea just for safety reasons. But we probably could have done a couple more fun things or something. So, you know, if you have the time and money, I really suggest taking an Avalanche 1 course. Uh, I hope to be taking one of those in the near future. My other advice would just be to don't get summit fever or don't try to push yourself or the people you're with beyond what's appropriate or what's safe. Um Make sure that you're staying in contact with the people in your group, making sure that they're, you know, feeling okay, that they're not getting too tired or anything like that. Because if they start, you know, acting fatigued or whatever, and maybe they slip and fall into avalanche terrain or something like that, that can obviously create a huge problem. But yeah, like you said, stay away from the sugar snow. Um, Also, slopes above 30 degrees is uh, avalanche terrain as well. So we really did try to stay off of slopes that were 30 degrees or more. And 30 degrees is not very steep. In a little bit of softer snow, it's difficult to even ski at 30 degrees. So people people are often surprised at how gradual 30 degrees is, but avalanches do happen in the right conditions at as little as 30 degrees of steepness. So that's an important thing to be aware of. 
So how far did you guys ultimately hike? What was the the round trip distance, do you think? The round trip distance was probably about eight or nine miles. So eight or nine miles, that's a significant distance in the summertime with a backpack on a nice trail. That's That can be a hard day's work if there's a lot of elevation change. But these guys are on snowshoes in winter conditions with heavier packs, and I know what that feels like. That that's tough. You guys pretty tired? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you feel a little bit spanked? Yeah. You ready to get up and do it again? In a little while. <laughs> yeah, not quite yet. <laughs> so are you glad you went? Yeah, absolutely. Caleb, take a moment to talk to people your own age. Talk to the teenage world. Why would you recommend that they get involved in outdoor sports? Yeah, so one thing that our society has sort of morphed into is living our lives through television or video games and it's not really even living our lives it's watching other people live their lives or living in a fake reality that doesn't really exist and the result of that is separation from nature and nature is is where our roots come from i know from my own experience that i just get really really tired of living in our society and i need a break out in the outdoors uh, and then it refreshes me. I feel my spirit feels alive again, and then I can go back in to our modern society and do what I need to do, and then look forward to the next trip. So I would encourage uh, listeners my own age to go out into the outdoors because it it awakens your spirit and you feel alive and you feel like. That's where you're meant to be. So, Stephen, how do you feel about that? Uh, I agree with everything he says. A couple of things that I would also add on is, you know, like I said earlier, the challenge that it is. I know, at least for me and a lot of people my age, you know, we're always looking. I don't want to necessarily say to prove ourselves, even though I think that is an element at times. But we're always looking to challenge ourselves and to extend ourselves, ex- widen our horizons. Um, and I think this really gives us a good chance to doing that. Um, also... You know, like Caleb said, we are from nature, but not only are we from nature, we need nature to survive. That's as basic as just having our natural resources, you know, letting cows graze or mining and extracting, you know, minerals and gas and stuff like that. We need nature. We are dependent on nature. Um, And with that is a huge responsibility to protect nature. And when you are in nature and you're experiencing nature, you grow to love nature Um, and you grow to become a part of nature again. You know, I think there's a common stigma around uh, the American culture these days that we aren't a part of nature, but really we are nature. We are just a different part of nature. Um, And as we have developed into, you know, more urban uh, and city life, we have kind of separated a little bit from nature, but we really are nature. And just like, you know, the deer depends on the grass and stuff like that, we depend on nature as well. Um, And so when we're in nature, we learn to love nature. And when we love nature, we want to protect nature. And so by being in nature, we're really eventually protecting it as well. And I think that's very crucial in this day and age. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, Caleb, you've done quite a few outdoors adventures now, and I know that it's probably helped define who you are to some degree. How would you say that the outdoors has helped you to be um, who you are today? 
That's a hard question. Uh, I think that the outdoors, mentally it has strengthened me because of the outdoors and because of, you know, the, the problems that arises when you're out there and there's no one to solve those problems for you. I feel like it, it's taught me how to solve problems and I can apply that in my regular life. Also, I think it's it's made me more aware of my surroundings. When you spend a lot of time in the outdoors, eventually what will happen is you you sort of use scatter vision all of your senses and you all of a sudden notice that there's a beautiful hawk in the tree to your right or something like that that otherwise you would have missed if you hadn't had so much experience in the outdoors so i think that as i spent more and more time in the outdoors my awareness level of my surroundings has gone up and that has proven to be very helpful especially like when i drive or something like that in my regular life. Well, cool. So, Stephen, same question. How do you think uh, your time in the outdoors has contributed to who you are today? Um, I think it's contributed a lot to just the tenacity that I've been able to develop, the mental toughness of not being willing to give up, um, and to, as some might say, saddle your own bronc, you know, to really take control of your equipment, your life, and uh, have it in a good, organized way. Uh, because when you're in the outdoors, especially in a situation like Caleb and I were in yesterday and today, you know, we don't have mom hovering over us telling us that we need to do this or we need to do that. Don't forget this. We are responsible for that. And as you said earlier, if we forget something, the consequences could potentially be deadly. Um, so it's really taught me mental toughness, but also uh, just self-responsibility. Steven, you have been taking coursework in outdoor education, and uh, you mentioned earlier some studies that talk about the value of, of the outdoors for young people. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly who the studies were done by. I think it was Kaplan or Copeland, something like that, Stephen Copeland or something. Uh, there's another person, but the name's evading me right now. But they've basically done some studies uh, with inner-city people, and so like one of these studies was a group of women part of the group were able to see something green out their window, like a park or just something natural, and the other group weren't. And the studies show that the group that could see something green had a, a lot lesser levels of aggression um, than the study that had people where all they could see were other buildings and other concrete structures. Um, there's also been studies done about people in the hospital um, and the recovery time if they are exposed to some sort of nature, whether it be a park outside their window or even virtual nature, you know, a picture on the TV screen. The study, if I remember correctly, the virtual nature, though it was helpful, it wasn't nearly as effective as having the real nature outside the window. But in comparison to uh, patients that did not have those nature aspects um, that they could see, there was a correlation between uh, the rate of time that they were released from the hospital. You know, I can add to that a little bit from personal experience. I was a teacher many years ago, and one thing that we did is we took middle school students, usually eighth graders, uh, seventh and eighth graders, I guess, and we would take them on a, a week-long outdoors experience, and we would stay in in cabins in the wintertime, spend a lot of time outside in the snow, do a lot of activities, 
uh, different types of, of just kind of wilderness awareness hikes and, and different science coursework and, and orienteering and, and different group games and, and problem-solving tasks that would help people to uh, grow in that group dynamic. And I worked with kids of this age for several years, and it was fascinating to me, especially with the inner-city kids who just really didn't have any outdoors experience. They had found coping mechanisms and I re- literally think that they had to find coping mechanisms because they were so disconnected from the natural order. And whenever we would take them into uh, the woods, then they their coping mechanisms were left behind. You know, they didn't have the same distractions. They didn't have their music. They didn't have the screens. They didn't have um, all of the places where they had grown to feel safe and what have you. And it was amazing to watch these kids um, some of them would, would literally come unglued. Some would recenter and discover a, an amazing love for nature, and it, it became a new beginning in their lives. There were others who would become so disturbed that they couldn't stay the week. We would have to send them off back home early just because they could not manage to be in a natural setting because, as the experts have named it, um, nature deficit disorder was just too strong in their lives. But I have seen so many students who go into nature and gain a, a sense of perspective that I think really is beneficial in their lives. And uh, some of them become true nature enthusiasts. But it's fascinating. If you ever have the opportunity to work with kids in nature, it's fascinating to see how powerful of an effect um, nature can have on, on people. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up uh, because there's also been studies shown that nature helps increase both the focus and creativity um, within people. And so especially the creativity comes to mind because you see an ant hill or a fallen log or something and you want to climb it or you want to mess around with the ants. You know, you, you're touching stuff, you're picking up stuff, you're turning over those rocks. So especially for young kids or small children, you know, just the exposure to nature and the sense of being able to explore um, is really powerful. But another element that I find very strong in nature, at least for myself, and I know many, many, many people do as well, is the uh, spiritual element. I find, uh, as I've been introduced more and more into the outdoor world, that uh, many people say that they are spiritual on some level, um, and a large part of that is because of nature, um, because when they're in nature, they have to submit to something greater than themselves. Now, these people may be something more organized, such as Christianity or Judaism or Muslim or whatever, or it might just be something saying that, you know, they're spiritual, there's something out there, and they're not sure what it is exactly. Uh, But nature really does force people to come to a higher power. And with that, it gives, again, a sense of peace. Just to add on to what Stephen said, don't be afraid to go out in nature and get dirty and feel nature and taste nature as long as you taste it safely you don't want to ingest a poisonous plant or something hear nature smell nature just really absorb nature i agree with both you guys and i don't know too many young men um, of your age that have that appreciation and it's tragic but i'm really really glad that you guys do and it sounds like you had a great trip and on behalf of our listeners i want to say thanks for your time This has been another Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. Hey friends, special request. Please tell all your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Word of mouth is the very best way to get the word out. Also, go to iTunes. 
rate us, leave a review, and subscribe. Thank you very much.